Coming up today, we look at how countries can best count deaths caused by the climate crisis and look at the latest twist in the gig economy workers' rights saga. You're listening to the Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Morgan Meeker. Hello. Amit Kawala. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Microsoft announced a deal to buy games company Activision Blizzard for $68.7 billion. The deal, if approved, would be Microsoft's biggest ever buyout and the largest deal in gaming history. This was also the week when Spain decided to curb the amount of celebrities promoting Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. From now on, advertisers need to notify the financial regulator 10 days before any promotional campaign starts. And on Thursday, the European Parliament voted to back new rules that would crack down on the way big tech platforms use targeted advertising. The Digital Services Act still has to be negotiated with EU member states before it becomes law. And finally, this was the week when Twitter launched NFT profile pictures, adding a veneer of respectability to the latest crypto craze. Users who link their crypto wallets to their Twitter accounts will be able to access special hexagon-shaped profile pictures to prove their ownership. But of course, there's still nothing stopping you from taking a screenshot. Welcome back, everybody. Happy New Year. Uh, And welcome back to Natasha. You're here again. It's good to have you back, Natasha. Hi. Thank you. How does it feel to be here again? Well, it kind of, you kind of made out like I sort of crept in. Mm. Yeah, what? (laughs) You're here. (laughs) Yeah, I heard some rumblings that there was going to be a change in like the imagery of the podcast and my face was going to be scratched out really can't can't stand for that so i thought i'd better make a swift return before any changes happen entirely for branding reasons uh, it's yeah. wonderful to have you back thank uh, you let's crack right on with a fact what have you learnt since we last spoke to you natasha i learned one thing and one thing only which is have you ever wondered why there aren't more mummies lying around often <laughs> yes <laughs> So around 70,000 people would have been mummified in Egypt in the 3,000 years of the ancient civilization, but a large chunk of them were eaten by Victorians. Now, when I came with this fact to the public forum, Amit said it was classic Bernal fake news, which I thought was pretty awful. So I sent him a link which proved that it was in fact correct. So Victorians used to use a skull of mummies and crush them into powders and they used to sort of inhale them to help with headaches and they used to drink mummy blood which was very prized for medicinal purposes so i want to ask you all would you eat a mummy yes or no i mean no i guess it doesn't really seem like a very consequential question (laughs) but if you could would you no no. (laughs) Uh, can i ask ask, uh, follow your question with another question which is what what do you think the best condiment to use to eat a mummy would be (laughs) Mayonnaise, definitely. Well, Ugh. mummies, they sound very dusty. I'm not sure what the best, you know, I guess you could like blend the mummy into like a smoothie or something. That might be, you know, the nicest way to consume them. Like a protein powder. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, protein, mummy protein. I, I think I'll maybe do that. It'd be like your yeast, Matt. 
Yeah, you yeah, sprinkle exactly. yeast so on top of everything. Great. The yeah, mummies, in fact, work as a cheese <laughs> substitute. You can make a lovely mummy parmesan with mixed with cashew nuts. That I feel it's not even worth explaining this. <laughs> uh, let's move swiftly on. Uh, Amit, what did you learn this week? Uh, I learned that octopus tentacles can stick to anything except themselves. Uh, so scientists believe that chemical signals in the skin of the octopus's arms prevent self-adhesion to stop it getting tangled up with its own kind of tentacles. Do you, do you have a question for the group based on your fact? Uh, would you eat an octopus tentacle? I mean, that's just the normal food stuff. No, um, no I don't. No. That's where the not. brains are, right? They have little brains in their tentacles. I learned that from my octopus teacher. Yeah, so that's one of the problems, right? So because the, the central brain doesn't know what each of the arms is doing, so there's a potential. So we have a sense called proprioception, which means we know where our limbs are at all times, even when their eyes shut. Octopuses don't have that. So there is, without this ability to not stick to itself, there was a really real chance that it could just get kind of tangled up in a way and not be able to get out. There we go. I was not expecting you to... Uh follow up your facts with additional facts that is spectacular work thank you matt reynolds what did you learn this week so i want you all to think of the last time you shuffled a deck of 52 cards maybe you spent some time playing cards with the family over christmas but did you know that at that point just after you shuffled that deck of cards you were holding a sequence of cards that had never existed before in the history of the universe specifically the bit of that history where people have been playing cards that's because (laughs) the number of possible arrangements of 52 cards is eight followed by 67 zeros so even if you rearrange the deck of cards every single second of the universe's entire existence the universe would come to an end before you were even one billionth of the way through finding a repeat so yeah basically some numbers very big is my fact I feel like we should take the podcast off air for a month more often. Everybody has gone away and learned some very, very good things. I mean, I yeah. didn't. Um, and we didn't ask Morgan for a fact. Um, so we'll, we'll believe Morgan did. I learned absolutely nothing in the past month. Um, I'm not really sure how we came, we came to this. Um, but at some point during the week, Matt Burgess, who isn't on the show this week, started referring to himself as Big Dog Burgess. Um, I don't think so that's this, true. That's not true. I, I, I think it's almost certain. He's not here to defend himself and you don't need to do it for him. So Fine. genuine question. This got me thinking. What would everybody's nickname and entrance music be? N- Natasha, seeing as you're re-entering the podcast after a, a brief hiatus, what would yeah. you choose? I get nothing but... Um mocking and abuse from this group so i immediately decided to jump in on the action and i used a mob name generator because i'm well known for my aged cultural references because i'm in fact an 80 year old like woman stuck in the body of a 32 year old woman so i all my references are so so old so i I did a mob name generator from the mob museum in the u.s and that generated the name lemon which lemon uh, is yeah, it's not not the best mob name I've ever heard. Um, it's not it's not particularly threatening. Maybe it's threatening because it is so unthreatening. I don't know. <laughs> I kind of mm, wondered. Anyway. like the, the logic wasn't there. Um, I sort of said, like, you know, I wanted to be the boss, and like, what I go, you know, what I say goes, and like, you know, if someone needs to be put down during prohibition, like, I'll do the deed, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, mm. lemon music, silent film music. <laughs> nice. So just some like, like plinky piano. plinky piano. <laughs> yeah, be great. Good. 
good. Wonderful. Um, Amit, I'm sure you've put a lot of thought into this. Well, I figure you want to go for like name recognition and he's not using it at the moment. So I would choose The Rock as my wrestling nickname and basically see what mm. happens. Uh, I'd have to lawyer well, up, I suppose I think. He, he, already, he already has entrance music, I guess, so you could just use that as well. Yeah, I think I would just use that. Although I like the idea of entering something like kind of classical and like, you know, sort of slightly out of place among the, the baying wrestling crowd. I'm assuming we're talking about wrestling nicknames rather than darts or snooker here. Entirely up to you. Yeah, yeah so that's me. Amit the Rock Katwala. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Morgan. Um, so I also use Natasha's mob name generator <laughs> and um, it asked me a series of questions and then told me I would be called Morgan Blue Eyes Mika. And because mm. it asked me what mob region I affiliate with the most and I picked Florida, then I would have my entrance music as Nicki Minaj, Miami. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, Matt Reynolds. Well, I mean... Not, you know, not to poo-poo the idea, but I feel that it it's up for other people to come up with my nickname. So maybe I'd invite the listeners to come up with my nickname. I just feel like, you know, if you come up with your own nickname, it's you're trying a bit hard to project an image. So I feel like, you know, maybe a reader or a listener can decide on my legacy and give me a nickname. But I thought that my entrance music could be, you know, like the mystery music, the dun-dun-dun. So anytime I entered a room, everyone would be like, oh, my God, someone's committed a crime or something's happened. Because I thought that would be, you know, and then everyone would go back to normal. I thought that would, you know, stir up a little bit of mystery every time I just went mm. into and, and become quite annoying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Podcast.wired.co.uk if you uh, want to come yeah, up with wait, a nickname. James, yeah, you're not going to What about yours? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to get away with it. I was just reminding okay, people of the email case. address. Um, so I headed to uh, name-generator.org.uk, uh, which asks you to, it's almost certainly some sort of evil data grab. It asks you to put in your full name, your date of birth, your bank account details, um, <laughs> and uh, three characteristics uh, after a month um, pretty much at home with two small children, uh, I put in tired, um, grumpy, um, and sarcastic. I feel like sarcastic is my is my true north in terms of personality traits. Um, sure. So it, it came up with quite a few things. Um, but I think I quite like James the Depleted uh, has, a, has a certain ring to it. Or just the, the last one it came up with was James the Carcass. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't really know what to do with that. Yes, Matt Reynolds. So we've exhibited a very strong reliance on nickname generators, computerized nickname generators. Mm. I'm wondering what Alexander the Great did, you know, all the way back. Did he go to like ye olde <laughs> nickname generator? Or was there like a nickname sage? And he went, oh, you're, you're a pretty good one. How about Alexander the Great? Because, yeah, I'm just wondering because they didn't have this kind of access to resource. So where did their names come from? Um, wikipedia.org come back next week and tell us where Alexander the Great got his nickname from and Ivan the Terrible as well um, in terms of entrance music I was thinking maybe the theme music to Curb Your Enthusiasm um, oh, would be nice. yeah would be kind Very of cute thank you I put some thought into it before heading to name-generator.org.uk podcast at wired.co.uk uh, if you have better nicknames for anybody on the podcast and who knows maybe they'll stick and become something that will be known as forevermore. Podcast at wired.co.uk. And if you've got a better name for Big Dog Burgess, um, we'd like to hear that as well. He definitely would. Okay, our first story this week, Amit, climate change deaths. 
Yeah, that's right. So we are looking this week at a new report into climate change that has revealed some surprising results. Now, obviously, we hear a lot about climate change, but it's often in quite abstract terms. You know, the news talks about degrees of warming or parts per million and things like that. But there's maybe a little bit less talk about the tangible impacts, you know, death, disease, famine and war, you know, that will be caused by a warming planet. Um, So Matt, you've been you've been looking into this this week. Yeah, exactly. And We've obviously, as you said, Amit, we, we talk a lot about climate change, but this core question of how much harm is it causing to people, how much disease, how much death is really at the heart of why we should care about climate change and why a lot of people are so worried about it. But it turns out that it's really, really hard pinpointing this number. So the world is already warmed by about one degree compared to you know, 1850, 900, uh, 1900. So we really kind of want to figure out, well, how many deaths can you attach to this warming that we've already had? Now, there have been a few attempts to try and put a figure on this. So there's one study that estimates that climate change was to blame for about 37% of heat-related deaths over the past three decades. Of course, we know that, um, you know, climate climate change doesn't just, just cause deaths because of heat, it causes deaths because of cold and because of extreme weather. So perhaps that doesn't tell the, the full picture. In 2021, a PhD student, student at Columbia University estimated that for every 4,400 tonnes of carbon dioxide you admitted, which is about three and a half uh, lifetimes worth of emissions for one American, that that would cause one heat-related death later in that century. And um, this PhD student, Daniel Bresler, called this the mortality cost of carbon. So we've got, you know, either quite specific estimates for for quite specific areas, or we've got this kind of broad calculation, but no one has really been able to point to a particular country and say, look, over the last 10 years, X number of deaths has been caused because of this warmer climate. Yeah, and I I think because we often talk about targets for 2030 or 2050, it's often framed as this sort of problem for the future or this problem that we're causing now, but where the, the sort of drawbacks will be reaped in the future. But this is not an academic exercise. Like people are already dying because of extreme temperature and extreme weather and we can expect this to become more and more common as the planet continues to change um so you know governments today kind of need an accurate way of measuring these deaths and measuring how much warming is kind of causing ill health um so you know uh, that phd student daniel Bressler you mentioned called it the mortality cost of carbon and there's kind of been an interesting development this week in the uk where we are trying to count deaths for the first time really caused by climate change right Yeah, absolutely. And this is all in this report from the UK's National Statistics Authority. It's called the Office for National Statistics. I guess listeners in the UK will be be familiar with this. Um, And for the first time, the ONS has reported climate-related deaths and hospital, hospital admissions in England and Wales. And this report covers the years 2001 to 2020, but they're going to project this data in the future and basically release yearly impacts about the uh, yearly reports about the impact that climate change is having on health in England and Wales. Kind of annoyingly, Scotland and Northern Ireland calculate the statistics slightly differently. So these statistics are just specific to England and Wales. But what this means is that for the first time, we have a really good sense or, well, we'll get on to into a little bit later about how good a sense this is. We have some sense of how many deaths climate change has led to in England and Wales over the past couple of decades. Um, so what's the what's the damage like how bad is it like how many people have died as a result of climate change over the last 20 years so weirdly the main finding is kind of good news depending on how you look at it so the report has found that the number of deaths associated with warm or cold temperatures actually decreased between 2001 and 2020 so on average per year 
27,755 fewer people were dying due to unusually warm or cold temperatures. So in other words, climate change might have actually prevented about half a million deaths in England and Wales over that time period, 2001 to 2020. And to give some year comparison figures, so in 2001, there were 993 climate-related deaths per 100,000 people. And by 2019, that figure had fallen to 771. So actually, the trajectory is towards fewer deaths over time. So what are we worrying about? Why are we, you know, bothering doing all this stuff? If we just continue heating up the planet, presumably deaths will continue to fall until, you know, we, we reach this sort of 45 degree utopia <laughs> where deaths are, you know, near zero from climate change. But I guess it, it is more complicated than that, right? There's, there's, there's more going on here. Yeah, exactly. And I, the people I spoke to at uh, the ONS were, I think, a little bit concerned that these statistics would be interpreted as saying, oh, actually, climate change is good for the UK. And yeah, they were rightly, I think, pretty concerned that that might be some people's takeout. And And the reality is, is that these things are a little bit more complicated once you get into it. And one reason is, is that this ONS estimate is probably quite a conservative estimate about the number of deaths uh, that are linked to climate change. And that's because they only included deaths from conditions where the scientific literature had already found a clear link between temperature and disease outcome. And so they excluded any health condition that their own analysis either uh, showed no link between temperature and outcome, or there was no you know, scientific evidence that there was a link between temperature and you know, better or worse health effects. And so this means that the mortality data doesn't include deaths from violence or natural forces such as flooding or landslides and things like that. So for a start, some deaths that may be linked to climate change aren't included in this. There's also another really big one is that this analysis excluded deaths from air pollution, which Public Health England estimates is equivalent to between 28,000 and 36,000 deaths each year in the UK. The reason why that's an estimate is because Often air pollution is like an exacerbating factor in ill health. It's, it's quite difficult to say that person died solely because of air pollution, but they may have had you know, a chronic re- respiratory condition that was worsened because of air pollution. So you can kind of put that in terms of equivalent deaths. The reason why the ONS didn't take that into account on a climate change basis, because they were looking very specifically at temperature change. And it's very difficult to say, well, is pollution worse in a world that is, you know, half a degree warmer, and how does temperature relate to pollution? So they basically took all the air pollution deaths off the table. Of course, if you'd included them, you would have had exactly the opposite um, effect. You would have had more deaths over time rather than this half a million uh, fewer deaths. Because you know, if you add up those twenty-eight thousand over time, they they outweigh those deaths that a uh, slightly warmer climate has you know prevented. And that gets us on to this really big reason and the main reason why climate change has not led to more deaths in England and Wales. And that's because we have a really mild climate. So although average temperatures in the UK have increased by just under a degree, the 0.9 degrees, compared to the period from 1961 to 1990, we're not one of the really, really hot parts of the world, right? You know, lots of the part of the world, uh, lots of parts of the world, in fact, um, one estimate says perhaps 3 billion people in, in, in warmer parts of the world will face unlivable conditions if greenhouse gas emissions increase rapidly. That's not the case in the UK. We already have quite a mild climate. And that means that we benefit more from warmer days in winter that are kind of reducing these deaths that are associated with cold weather. So really, it's, it's all down to our climate and the fact that for us, increased temperature means fewer colder days in winter. And that means fewer health effects associated with those cold days. 
So you just mentioned kind of a bunch of things that aren't included. So air pollution, storm. So if we're not counting those, what counts? What, and as you say, it's really, really difficult to attribute a death to climate change solely. So what did count in this analysis? What were we counting? Was it just people dying kind of during heat waves and cold snaps? Or was it slightly more than that? It's mostly when we're talking about these deaths that are related to extreme temperatures, we're talking about cold weather and we're talking about deaths from respiratory illnesses and cardiovascular diseases. So already some of the major causes of death, especially uh, among older people. And we know that if you have a really cold winter, for example, more people die from influenza and pneumonia. So it's exactly the same uh, you know, for this. So basically saying, well, if you have milder winters, you have less cases of these diseases, you have less uh, severe respiratory outbreaks, and so you have fewer deaths. And the same is true for heart conditions like uh, angina and you know, other heart conditions. It's also true for um, certain neurological conditions like uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. Cold weather tends to make them worse, and it can tip people who are already very vulnerable um, over the edge, and eventually they die. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing to say is that obviously the country is not the same as it was in 2001, as it was in 2020. So climate, the climate isn't the only thing about the UK environment that's changing. So the, the fall in deaths might be nothing to do with climate change. It might be just a sign that we're getting better at, at preventing people from dying in cold weather. So we, we're much better at vaccinating for flu, for example. There's more support for people who can pay their heating bills. Home insulation is much more widespread than it was in 2001, which may have meant that those cold, cold days didn't quite hit as hard as they would have done in the past. Um, and, you know, although our homes are warmer now, I, I guess we might, although, as you say, the climate's very mild, we might end up with the opposite problem where our very, very well-insulated homes, which were perfect for the cold weather we used to have, are going to be too hot in the summer now because, you know, we don't really have air conditioning, the ventilation often isn't great. So that may start to become a problem in future. So I guess my question is, now that we've got this kind of metric uh, looking at the last 20 years, what happens next? Is this something that we're going to start seeing on the news like we do with coronavirus deaths? Is there going to be kind of a, a X number of people died of climate change this week? Or how do you see this playing out? Yeah, I mean, first off, I think that point about mitigations is really important because maybe we think about climate defences as sea walls or flood barriers or, you know, the, the, I don't know, painting buildings white so they, they get less hot and things like that. But actually, stuff like flu vaccines and better home insulation, they're mitigations against a change in climate. And rather than saying or reading this report and saying, great, climate change is good for us or climate change doesn't affect us negatively, you can also read it and say, right, some of the climate mitigations we had in place are actually working. And maybe we want to think about how we can expand, how we can expand them further, you know, help people insulate their homes more or you know, make fuel prices more affordable. You know, a really important topic right now, you know, during the gas crisis in the UK. But definitely to answer some of those questions, as you say, Amit, we're going to need to find out more granular detail and we're going to, you know, start to analyze these reports on a on a yearly basis and that's what the ons is planning to do but to really help us get a little bit more you you know use out of these especially in terms of informing policy their plan is to look much more closely at how temperature changes affected different regions of the uk down to like quite a local level and this is really important because they might find that okay 
you know, uh, warmer days in winter had a good effect in richer areas, but perhaps in parts of the UK that didn't have as good access to healthcare, or perhaps they had, you know, a higher prevalence of underlying health conditions, maybe that caused worse effects. So maybe they didn't benefit from the warming temperatures as much as richer people did. And it's also really important, and what the ONS wants to do is look at these knock-on effects of climate change. So if someone's home is flooded, you know, that's obviously bad. That might not cause direct disease, but it might increase their vulnerability to respiratory diseases because, you know, their home is damp or it might worsen their mental health because they have to leave their home or just the stress of, um, you know, being in that environment. And we already know that people with mental illnesses are more at risk of death during hot weather. So we know that um, you know, climate change already affects vulnerable people, uh, you know, more severely. And we don't know exactly why that is when it comes to mental illnesses, but people think that researchers think that it might be because people with mental illnesses are, you know, more likely to be social isolated or already have poorer health, which makes them more vulnerable when these temperatures rise. And then there's this kind of other part, which is well, this is interesting data for the UK, but for other countries, this could be really, really vital because lots of countries face a very, very severe health burden or the prospect of a severe health burden due to climate change. So what the ONS team are doing is they're trying to roll this out or or start to figure out how this can be part of a a wider effort to create a global system to count climate-related deaths and health impacts more generally. So they're teaming up with the uh, Wellcome Trust, which is a big um, biomedical uh, research funding body in the UK. And they're basically, over this next year, they're going to identify a bunch of partner countries that they might help you know, develop different ways of measuring climate impacts and, and climate deaths that work for these countries. And eventually use this data to help these countries devise policies that might you know, lessen that health impact of climate change. Do, do you think that the kind of given all the caveats and assumptions that have gone into this this sort of headline figure, do you think that having... I mean, I guess we've seen during the pandemic how having a headline figure for deaths really kind of hammered home the sort of seriousness of the situation, you know, especially in the early days of the pandemic, when you were looking on the news at the number of hospitalizations and deaths, you were like, this is a, a serious thing, a serious issue. Do you think that even a sort of flawed headline figure of X number of people died of climate change this year is helpful, even if it is, you know, based on all these caveats and, and you know, doesn't take into account all these things like air pollution and other factors? Yeah, I think it is really helpful. And I think that the pandemic has really brought that to light because obviously, you know, I guess listeners will be really familiar with all this debate there's been over, um, did someone die with COVID? Did they die of COVID? Was someone that was over age over 80 going to die in that year anyway? Or, or you know, you know, did COVID mean they died early? And really the golden metric, if you like, that emerged from this is excess deaths. How many people usually die in a year? And then in a year in which we had coronavirus, how many more people died? And then you can say, well, look, I can't exactly tell you the reason for every single death, but I can tell you there's hundreds of thousands more deaths this year. And that suggests that there's some kind of exacerbating factor. And oh, look, it's this pandemic that we're going through. And I think the same type of thinking is really, really relevant to climate change, because it's going to be really difficult to say, for instance, that a war was caused because of climate change. But could climate change be an exacerbating factor that might spark wars? That's, exce- that's exceedingly likely. So what you can start to do in modelling is kind of run these counterfactuals where you say, OK, in a world where temperature hadn't increased by you know, 1.5 or 2.7 or however many degrees, how many deaths would we have expected to see? And then how many deaths did we see in this world? And that might give you some idea of the influence that increased temperature is having. So I, I think you're completely right, Amit. Like, I don't think that we're ever going to necessarily have this golden number 
but it can give you a really good sense of, well, this is how deaths should be going, and this is how they are going, and this might be the impact that climate change is having. So at least it gives us some sense of the you know, the impact, you know, you know, the health impact that climate change is having. So <clears throat> I guess what we've seen over the last well, couple of hundred years with medical science, right, is life expectancy going up and up and up and up, and there's not really been much to push back down on it, right? People live longer, healthier lives now than they've ever lived before. Is what you're saying what we're likely to see as climate change worsens even as we try to keep a cap on it is that maybe that upward curve starts to flatten, level off and come down, particularly in certain areas of the world that are going to feel the worst effects of the climate crisis, that it might start to push down on the progress of medical science by taking people before their time? Yeah, that's quite an interesting question. I mean, my understanding on life expectancy is that the upwards drive is is usually caused by like a decline in child mortality. So fewer children dying basically pushes the average life expectancy of everyone up. So usually it reflects very low infant mortality and very low, you know, childhood disease burdens. So I don't necessarily think that it's the case that you'll see life expectancy continue to go down because the trend of lower infant mortality is is still strong in developing countries. And I think that would probably outweigh it. It certainly is true that in more developed parts of the world, you are seeing those those increases in life expectancy start to plateau. I think we saw that in the UK. In fact, I think life expectancy has now dropped ever so slightly. But I think it's more about the health impacts really coming to bear on these people that are already, um, you know, uh, you know, experience really poor food security, or maybe they are, you know, unstable in terms of the housing, or maybe they're going to be pushed out. So I think that it's definitely going to have like a really, really big impact, especially in the warmer parts of the world. I'm not necessarily sure if we'll see that pattern reflecting global life expectancy. But um, that doesn't mean that it's not having a really, really real and pressing impact on people, you know, right now, in fact. There was a detail, I think it was in your story, and maybe um, you and Amit didn't talk about it just now. Is we, One thing you did say is we tend to think of climate change in um, these kind of big numbers and targets that are quite far into the future. And I think one of the things that was in your story was this idea that, okay, so one of the results of climate change might be that the UK, for example, has a wetter climate. Um, a lot of UK houses are kind of damp. Um, if you have a wetter climate, that might mean you have a damper house and damp houses tend to give people all sorts of respiratory diseases. Um, so even though it might not feel like climate change is affecting people right now or in the years to come, if the UK does keep getting wetter, even if it doesn't get colder or hotter or whatever, well, it will get hotter, um, it will be the damp that will get you in a way, right? Which is a different way to think about the impact of climate change on your life. Yeah, exactly. And you can even follow that a bit further along, which is saying stuff like, well, if we need to insulate our homes and, um, you know, make it harder for uh, cold to escape, because we need to do that to reduce our carbon emissions. Well, what does that do to home ventilation? Does it make our homes um, you know, less healthy in terms of ventilation? And does that mean that it increases respiratory illness? So you have this kind of slightly weird situation where certain mitigations might also make our homes less healthy as well. So ideally, you want a very well insulated and a very well ventilated home. But that's quite hard to achieve simultaneously. And it's especially hard in the UK, which has quite a wet, damp climate. So you start to see these slightly lower, more 
insidious effects that might, um, you, you know, announce themselves in maybe asthma rates or rates of lung disease and, and things like that. So there's all these kind of unexpected knock-ons that you might need to do quite clever and detailed analysis to actually, you know, work out the root cause of. It's a really interesting story and there's quite a bit more detail that we haven't got into in the show podcast at wire.co.uk if you've got any thoughts on that or anything else that we talk about on the show this week and we'll include a link to Matt's story in the show notes. Our second story this week is about a new iteration of the gig economy, which is playing out at the moment in the UK. Now, gig workers were promised more rights, but as it turns out, takeaway apps don't really want to be the ones providing them. Morgan, you were looking into this. Can you tell us a bit more? Yes. So I think one of the most interesting companies to watch as increased scrutiny and regulations forces delivery platforms to change their business models and the way they treat their riders is Just Eat. So Just Eat isn't one of these kind of new generation of delivery apps that's been around since 2001. And since then, it's sort of grown by merging or acquiring its competitors, including the first ever takeaway platform I ever used, which was Hungry House, and more recently, the Netherlands um, Takeaway.com. But in the last couple of years, Just Eat has tried to position itself as a direct competitor to the likes of Deliveroo or Uber Eats. And when those companies were facing a barrage of criticism for the way they treated their riders, Just Eat attempted to anticipate regulatory changes that were coming. And in 2020, it announced it was launching this kind of gig economy shakeup where drivers employed under what it called its scuba model would be entitled to hourly wages, sick pay and pension contributions. I mean, the gig economy is moving quite quickly, but at at the time, back in 2020, this felt quite radical for the industry. And it also seemed to embolden Just Eat CEO Yitzha Grohn to kind of troll all the other delivery company CEOs on Twitter. And he's sort of calling out Uber CEO, telling him to pay his riders minimum wage and things like that. So they kind of had this moment in the sun where they were like the good guys of the delivery apps. And and they seemed to be really enjoying that. They were... um, busy kind of taking down the other companies in articles about the gig economy and other things like that. Um, But once I started looking at this scuba model, basically what I discovered was that riders who were working under scuba weren't actually employed by Just Eat, but they're working technically for a Dutch staffing agency called Randstad. And so the small print showed that riders weren't going to receive benefits directly from Just Eat, but instead they were being outsourced. And then once I started pulling on this thread, I discovered this kind of entire sub-industry of staffing agencies that are rushing to relieve delivery platforms of kind of the messy job of managing their couriers in exchange for some of the $14 billion in funding that the delivery platform have received since the beginning of the pandemic. So if you've been following this debate for some time, and we definitely have, you saw that Just Eat CEO basically saying we're going to make couriers de facto employees. But what has really happened is that it's been decided that these couriers would be other people's employees, right? So it is a really interesting scenario where it does feel like a lot of the situations at the moment in the gig economy is that they're waiting for new uh, legislation to come to pass. We had the Supreme Court decision in the Uber case, which basically stated that, you know, couriers and drivers should be given more rights. You have the situation in the European Commission saying that gig economy workers deserve more rights. And as it's playing out here at the moment, it feels like those couriers are saying they're not getting a better deal. So how, how widespread is outsourcing and, and what is the kind of deal that's being presented to couriers at the moment? 
So it's actually quite difficult to find out how widespread it is. No one was willing to put a number on that. We know that Just Eat has turned to Randstad to contract 6,000 of its riders and drivers across six UK cities. Um, but it's also using another staffing agency called Stuart to provide couriers in at least two more. Um, but what I think what's interesting is, is kind of the fact that it looks like it's growing. This trend is growing. So another um, groceries app, Gorillas, has also been using third party agencies, including a startup called Ride to supply extra workers. And Gorillas is a particularly interesting example because the company is very vocal about the fact that all its riders and warehouse staff are employees entitled to benefits. Um, but Gorillas told me the reason they need to use ride workers at peak times and when they're setting up in new locations is because they want this flexibility. Um, so it's definitely it's definitely a trend that's that's growing. And and I think it's interesting to see where it will go in the future. Um, I mean, Spain is an interesting example because Spain seems a bit further along uh, with this trend. Uh, the country introduced a riders law in May 2021, which gave food delivery companies three months to employ couriers as staff. Uh, that, that meant delivery left shortly after that was introduced. But now some people are kind of pointing to Spain as an example of how of how delivery platforms respond to kind of stricter regulation uh, quite a lot. I spoke to one Spanish union that said uh, companies like Just Eat, Uber Eats and Amazon are all using temporary work agencies and subcontractors to hire salaried riders. And this basically means it's outsourcing and 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 they they've kind of pushed this problem kind of down a pipeline. So another 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 company has to deal with it. Yeah, you can see exactly why they're doing this. Their business models weren't really set up to, you know, pay for people to you know have holidays, sick leave, to have loads and loads of you know, thousands of employees um, that, that only work for them part of the time. It's a logistical nightmare. So it makes sense for, for them to say, right, we're going to, you know, comply with, with laws that come into place across Europe and also avoid the sort of overhead that would land on their laps if they made all of their couriers and drivers employees. But, but I suppose a lot of people might think, well, what's, what's the problem here, right? You, you've got you know, all of these thousands of people that work in the gig economy, um, if they're being given you know, sick pay, holiday pay, uh, leave, wh- what's the issue here? It doesn't really matter if it's these companies providing it versus a, you know, outsourcing temp agency. D- does it really matter? Are, are, are they not getting a better deal? So riders unions are not against outsourcing per se, if it helps platforms treat their workforce better and gives riders the technology that means they can do deliveries more efficiently and make more money. But they are worried about it being used if its main purpose is to shield well-known delivery platforms, which receive more scrutiny from blame when workforce problems inevitably arise. A good example of this is what's going on in Sheffield right now. So there's a strike taking place, which is claiming to be the longest ever gig economy strike in the UK. And the people who are striking are people who carry out deliveries for Just Eat, but that they're actually employed by a company called Stuart, which Just Eat has been using since 2017. Uh, riders here are technically offered an option to earn minimum wage, um, but it sounds like that option is pretty cumbersome. It's not kind of technologically incentivized. So instead, most opt to earn a fee per drop um, and then kind of mileage and some other things added on top of that. But when Stuart tried to drop this from £4.50 to £3.40, that's when riders started striking back in December and they're still going, actually. Uh, 
Um, and so lots of people I spoke to use this strike as a good example of, of how, come, how delivery platforms can use outsourcers to shield themselves from some of the consequences or some of the difficulties that arise with having this kind of workforce. Um, so, I mean, because the riders striking in Sheffield are technically employed by Stuart, that's the company that the strike and the union campaign has focused on, which means Just Eat has essentially managed to dodge a lot of the criticism that's going on up there. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. There's so many things to unpick from that because on, on the one hand, you have a situation where when we're talking about the gig economy and a lot of the headlines we've seen have been against, you know, Uber, Deliveroo, you know, how employees um, how employees are talking about how they're set, sort of separate from couriers who are treated as independent contractors, how independent contractors are saying they're, you know, freezing while they're waiting for, you know, a takeaway deliveries to be given to them from restaurants, how they have to pee in bushes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, but obviously if, if these... If these strikes, right, if, if the problems are with the outsourcing companies themselves, that visibility becomes very different, right? And, and some of the people that were talking to you for this piece were saying, you know, they might have been given a good deal by outsourcing companies in the beginning, but that slowly gets eroded, right? They sort of start off with one premise and then things start getting worse and worse progressively. But more importantly, people were telling you that the, the riders and the couriers at the moment are kind of stuck in the middle, right? They're in a situation where when they have an employment issue, they'll go to um, the company that they're delivering for and they'll say that's not our problem you're not employed by us and they'll go to the outsourcing company and the outsourcing company will be like well it's not our fault it's the takeaway company itself that's telling us to do it this way so they're sort of caught between you know a rock and a hard place not really knowing where to go so I I do wonder obviously we've seen this this really long-standing Sheffield protest is it likely that we're going to see more of this going on as outsourcing becomes more frequent in the gig economy? Yeah, I definitely think it is going to be become more frequent. I mean, there's a few indicators that show it's kind of picking up, picking up speed. Uh, one really interesting company that I found was one called Ride. Um, and so it's really new. It started in 20, 2021. Well, it relaunched in 2021. It was actually set up as a platform called Game Plan, which was designed for companies in the event sector. And then it pivoted during COVID to become Ride. So it launched in 2021 in that format. Um, and I wasn't able to reach Ride, but I did speak to an investor who who had uh, participated in its two point five million pound seed seed fund in in seed round in August. And I think it was really interesting because that sort of gave a glimpse of kind of the investor side and the interest in these outsourcing companies. And there's a sense that kind of investors who haven't already uh, participated in the gig economy they've missed a boat in investing in in platforms like Deliveroo or Gorillas, for example, but they still feel there's a big opportunity to help these platforms solve their their problems with their workforce. So they're kind of pitching Ride as this, this company that can make the delivery platform's life much easier. Um, so can, bearing in mind that Ride only launched in 2021, uh, a year later, it's already working with Gorillas, Ocado and others, um, and and there seems to be a lot of interest. So I think using that as kind of a barometer, it shows that it's likely that the interest is there and there are going to be companies who sort of rise to meet that interest. And I think that's going to cause problems for the riders. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting when you think about all the kind of legislation and regulation that's coming down the line, right? Because a lot of it is targeting delivery apps and the gig economy companies themselves it's going to be interesting because none, none of it really mentions outsourcing companies and if they're going to become a sort of pivotal part of that economy they should be included right you would think that they they should be 
subject to the same scrutiny as as a gig economy company if they're supplying that but that that's not the case right well there is actually one example in in Europe so in December 2021 the European Commission published a major new draft law that attempts instead of just regulating delivery platforms it attempted to kind of define the line between self-employed platform workers and an employee because one of the big complaints that you hear from people who are stuck between the outsourcers and the delivery platforms is they've lost the freedom of flexibility of freelancers um, but they're also not gaining the stability of employees so what the European Commission has proposed to do is kind of make sure that platforms have to look at, at five criteria and if if a platform answers yes to five of those questions then they have to then they have to give their workers employee rights and those questions are things like does the platform monitor riders performance does it decide how much they're paid does it decide what they wear and so if the platform wants to still classify a worker as 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 self-employed they have to give them the freedom to actually be self-employed they can't kind of occupy this muddy middle territory and hopefully that will also apply to outsourcers and this kind of new form the gig economy is taking it's encouraging to hear that kind of legislation being talked about because it, it feels ridiculous after all of these years and all of the court cases that companies like uber have lost around workers rights that we're in a situation where the business of handling the safety and um and welfare of of employees is being now outsourced by the gig economy morgan what do you think it is about the gig economy that makes these companies so allergic to wanting to care for the people that work for them but what i think what's actually interesting is that the gig economy we have kind of like these these big hopes for the gig economy because it feels kind of like new and revolutionary but actually there's loads of industries that rely on outsourcers and outsourced workers and those workers have been struggling for rights for ages i mean the cleaning industry is a really interesting one i mean there's a giant cleaning outsourcer in the uk called mighty and i mean the 2022 profit forecast of mighty was 145 million so it's a successful company outsources cleaners to governments and corporate uh, organizations all over the country and so I feel like this is what happens quite often as a company comes along they promise promise they're going to be new and everything's going to be different but they actually just end up falling back on old patterns um, and I think that's what's happening here with just kind of repeating kind of issues from other industries and from the past. It's a really interesting development in the long-running saga of the gig economy we'll include a link to the full story in the show notes and if you've got any thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week it's podcast at wired.co.uk there are a few things in the inbox um, seeing as we've been away for so long natasha you've got the first email this week yeah so Irfan has written in saying hello james and the gang uh, I see on my player of choice that both Vicky and Natasha have their pictures on the podcast cover, which I don't mind, as it reminds me of the fond memories of both of them. Thank you very much. Um, they say, can you by chance get Grace and Morgan on the cover as well? Excellent as always and really enjoyed the quiz. I wasn't at the quiz. Glad of the fond memories. I approve of including Grace and Morgan on the hopefully soon redesigned podcast cover James I'm not sure if that's in the works but I think we do I, I came back for my face to continue on the podcast cover it's not true but um it's partly one of the reasons so I feel it's like a, it should happen right it's a coveted prize the podcast album cover illustration we'll see what we can do uh I'm not sure how many faces we can fit on maybe we could 
rethink it and do it as some sort of cheesy American 90s sitcom style. Everyone's sort of uh, standing with their backs to one another and we're all laughing at a funny joke that Amit's told. That could be good. I was thinking maybe like Happy Days, like, you know, when they have the little squares, like on Zoom, like we are right now. That'd be quite cute. Yes. Yeah, that would be a nice way of showing how we all sit in our houses all alone and pretend that we're all in a room having fun together. Yes, maybe we'll do that, like a Zoom Happy Days or 90s sitcom cheesy Amit joke thing. Anyway, uh, other emails. Matt Reynolds, you've got the next one. Yeah, Dylan wrote in saying, Long time listener here. I'll start off by saying I love the show and will be excited to hear your first podcast of 2020 after your well-deserved break. Well, Dylan, you'll be excited that you're in the first podcast after 2020, so glad to be back. Uh, Dylan wrote in about this story that Grace brought on Matt, a couple of weeks sorry, I'm going to have to stop you there. It's, it's 2022. <laughs> What year, what year did I say? Did I say 2020? 2020. I know oh, no, the pandemic's been repeating. hard on all of us. Oh, no. Well, Dylan, welcome to 2020. You've got a rough couple of years ahead of you. Sorry about that. So you wrote in about this story that Grace brought on about sequencing the genomes of newborn babies in the UK. Dylan wrote, uh, could it perhaps be possible that loads of children growing up, knowing they have a genetic condition or predisposition to something, could maybe induce the placebo effect, resulting in more people displaying these conditions they would have otherwise the placebo effect has been proven to be extremely powerful Uh, that's a really interesting idea Dylan I'm not sure exactly how the placebo effect applies to certain genetic conditions that you know maybe like you know likelihood to develop cancer or something which I guess have different biological indicators but it's, it's super interesting I think the answer is maybe maybe we don't know maybe someone can bring some answers on the show podcast.wired.co.uk if you've got any answers uh final email this week barry writes in about the festive quiz from the end of 2021 which natasha missed but hopefully uh not many other people did because it was great um as barry writes great quiz as always but he has to object to the size of the ring of power question this is about the lord of the rings the ring in lord of the rings is not any size you want it but any size it wants yeah natasha you would have you would have it's made true sure you were right i would that. have yeah, never so. let that stand that's, yep. you know, again, this another is why we had to, to have you back. back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Barry writes that the evil ring will expand and fall off your finger when it is looking for someone more evil or mobile to take it nearer to its rightful owner. Keep up the good podcasting work. Always happy to set the record straight. Podcast at wired.co.uk if we've made any other schnafus this week or if you're trolling back through the archive um please do send in emails about stories from past weeks and also we want um nicknames for matt reynolds and big dog burgess podcast at wired.co.uk we'll bring matt burgess on next week hopefully so he can uh, enjoy all the nicknames that you sent in for him thanks so much for listening this week great to have natasha back and great to have the podcast back we'll be back again next week goodbye bye, bye. bye.